We're trying to conduct a serious scientific investigation. Science, logic, reason. Do you have any hard data? Now, that's what I call science. That's what I call science is proudly recorded in Tasmania at Edge Radio. We would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which we are gathering to record this episode. We recognise the ongoing contributions that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples are making to the sciences. You're listening to That's What I Call Science, the weekly radio show and podcast that brings you interesting science, technology, engineering and maths content from Tasmania. My name is Neve Chapman and I'm joined by my co-host Alana Russell. And on the phone we have two expert guests who are pathologists from Tasmania. Alana, can you tell us a little bit more about what we're going to be talking about today? Today we're going to be talking about a little-known branch of medicine known as pathology. Pathology informs 70% of all medical decisions and diagnoses 100% of cancers. So to help us understand what pathology is and how it relates to us, we're joined today by two pathologists, Dr. Dan Owens and Dr. Eileen Long. Thank you for joining us today, both of you. Um, We wanted to first kind of ask you what pathology is. Can you describe to us, perhaps Dan, could you start? Absolutely, Alana. So um, pathology is a medical specialty. It's involved in looking at the cause and nature of uh, disease by examining and looking at body tissues and body fluids. And by examining those, uh, by the, the tissues and the body fluids, we're able to help inform doctors and their patients with regards to what's going on in their, with their health, whether it be uh, with regards to prevention of disease, the managing existing disease, diagnosing important uh, conditions such as cancers. You're both medical doctors though, aren't you? Absolutely, that's right. Yeah, so to, to, to be a pathologist, and, uh, it requires that uh, you've done your uh, medical degree and then you go on and specialise in pathology. And there are a number of fields within pathology that you may uh, choose to become specialised in. I'm a haematologist. What's a haematologist uh, do? So a haematologist is an expert in all things to do with the blood from the point of view of red cells, white cells and platelets, which are all the little bits that make up uh, our blood and all the aspects that can be associated with it, whether it be uh, going from the cancers of the blood through to things such as anemia, problems with the blood cell count, uh, clotting disorders. All of the Australians, when they go and have a blood test, they'll have their blood collected by a collector, blood a pathology collector, and then I'll become directly involved with that uh, analysis or the test because they're looking at that blood if there's an abnormality. What about you, Eileen? Can you tell us a bit about what you do as a pathologist? Thanks, Alana. So I am an anatomical pathologist. So I am a specialist pathologist who mainly looks at tissues. So there are three main areas that um, I do. The first is surgical pathology, and that involves the diagnosis of diseases through examining tissue um, at both the macroscopic and microscopic level. And so, for example, if you have a skin lesion removed by your GP or you have a a cancer removed by a surgeon, those are sent to me for for examination and diagnosis. The second area is cytopathology, which is the diagnosis of disease through the study of individual cells, um, which are either aspirated or obtained from fluids. The most common example would be the uh, cervical screening test or a pap smear, but in Tasmania, Finite aspirations of thyroids or other lumps and bumps in your neck are quite common. And then the third area that an anatomical pathologist covers is autopsy pathology. 
which is really the study of the cause and effects of the disease through examining the entire body after death. It sounds like an incredibly interesting and diverse field, pathology, but it doesn't sound like you really see patients. So is that correct that you more so see samples from patients rather than actually interacting with a, a live person? Yeah. When one becomes a pathologist, you can become, you can be specialised solely in laboratory pathology, such as Eileen has with regards to anatomical pathology and looking at tissue uh, down the microscope, as well as having some clinical interaction when the bedside with regards to taking samples from patients, the fine needles that uh, Eileen was referring to is, is direct patient contact. But then, uh, such as myself, who's a haematologist, I've not only specialised in laboratory haematology, but I'm also a clinical haematologist as well. So it's a dual specialty. I was drawn to the subspecialty because of that dual nature where I'm able to see a patient, able to see someone who's got a, a blood disorder, but then go to the lab and potentially make the diagnosis for that person and then go back to them and say, this is what's going on. That is also for microbiology. So commonly a microbiologist will not only be a laboratory microbiologist, but they'll also be an infectious diseases physician as well. That's really fascinating. It goes to show that the field is really diverse and it involves a lot of decision making behind the scenes, but then also the really um, on the front line as well, patient interaction. You're listening to That's What I Call Science. And today we are talking about the role of pathologists in modern medicine. Stay tuned for more. You're listening to That's What I Call Science, and today we're talking about medicine, specifically pathology. My name is Alana Russell, and I'm joined by Neve Chapman, along with our expert guests, Dr. Dan Owens and Dr. Eileen Long. Pathology is an incredibly important field of medicine, as we've already discussed. So these are the doctors that your GP or surgeon will go to to consult about your illnesses. So why don't we know much about them or hear much about them in the media? Eileen. Pathologists, being a pathologist, it sounds a bit like it's a, an invisible kind of job, especially you as a laboratory specialist pathologist. What kind of inspired you to follow this job route? I think I would say that pathology is in my blood. My dad was a medical laboratory scientist in hematology, which is the same area as Dan. And he actually immigrated to Australia from Scotland in the early 1970s to take a job at Hobart Pathology, where I now work. And he really instilled in me a love of science growing up. And I remember when I was young, actually spending some of my summer holidays in the lab with him. I think occupational health and safety probably wasn't quite as strong then as it is now. And I remember the magic of being surrounded by people in lab coats, with machines and the microscopes. And my dad would often sit me up on his chair and I would look down the microscope at blood, which was a part of his job. And he also had a very old microscope that I showed Dan earlier this week and I would look at his collection of slides at home. And after finishing uh, medicine, I worked for a couple of years as a hospital doctor and I was struggling really to think of what specialty to enter. And so I took a gap year and went travelling for a year. And it was in that sort of year away from medicine that I realised that it was the science behind diseases that really fascinated me. And I wanted a job that was not only intellectually stimulating, but also had a very hands-on approach. I had had a couple of very inspirational anatomical pathology lecturers at university, and they instilled a, lo a love of pathology in me. So, um, yeah, I decided to enter the specialist medical uh, training program in Tasmania, and I've worked here ever since. 
That is a fantastic story. Thank you for sharing. I love that pathology is in your blood. That is perfect. I think you should write a memoir with that as the title. (laughs) Um, So you mentioned earlier, though, that one of the tests that people would recognise was HPV testing or pap smears. I thought I might ask you a little bit more about that because I'd really like to know kind of what happens between a doctor actually doing a test like a pap smear and then that test getting to a pathologist. When you go to your doctor for um, the old-fashioned pap smear or the newer cervical screening test, the doctor examines you via a sort of vaginal speculum examination And what they do is they take cells from your cervix with a special brush. With the old-fashioned pap smear, they used to smear those cells onto a slide, which was then sent to the laboratory. But in the newer cervical screening test, those cells are actually suspended in a liquid medium. And when they come to the laboratory, they first go to the molecular lab. And dependent on the result of that test is when the cytopathologist becomes involved. So if the HPV DNA test is negative, that person can return to their five-yearly screening. But if it is positive, we perform reflex cytology. And that means that those cells are sort of spun down and they're put on a monolayer on a slide. Those slides are stained with a Papanicolou smear, uh, stain, and then they are screened by scientists. Then they come to the pathologist who screens them. What we are looking for is changes in the cells that are due to the HPV infection. Eileen, um, sounds like you've done a bit of work with these tests on HPV. Can you tell us a bit about cervical cancer and HPV? So HPV stands for human papilloma virus, uh, which is a double-stranded DNA virus. It's a very common sexually transmitted infection um, worldwide. Uh, Both men and women can become infected with HPV, and that infection usually occurs sort of soon after the onset of sexual activity. So for many people, they actually have no symptoms. So they don't realise they're infected and they don't realise that they may be passing it on to other people. So in humans, over 100 genotypes of HPV have been identified. And we tend to divide those into low-risk and high-risk genotypes, reflecting the risk of them causing precancerous or cancerous changes. Approximately 15 of these HPVs are oncogenic or high-risk, which means that they are cancer-causing HPVs. And this is really important because we know that high-risk HPV is responsible for basically all cervical cancers or almost all cervical cancers. And it also causes most anal cancers and also high numbers of vaginal cancers, uh, vulval cancers, penile cancers and oropharyngeal cancers. So they're cancers at the back of the throat um, or the base of the tongue um, and the tonsils. But we know that not everyone that gets an HPV infection will develop these lesions. Many people have a silent or a suppressed infection. Other people develop, uh, the virus replicates within their cells, causing these cellular changes that we can pick up on the cervical screening test with cytology examination. But we know that most people have this virus cleared within two years. So 90% of people will clear the virus. But some people don't clear the virus, so they end up with persistent HPV infection. And those are the people that can go on to develop precancerous changes and then cervical cancer. And cervical cancer itself um, is a cancer of the cervix, which is the lower part of a woman's womb or uterus where it joins the vaginal canal. But cervical cancer is a very rare outcome of HPV infection. In Australia, we have one of the lowest rates of cervical cancer in the world. And that's mainly due to the fact that we, uh, we have a very good health system and we have a cervical screening program. 
So, for example, in 1982, it was the sixth most common form of cancer in women. But by last year, it was the um, it was the 14th most common cause of cancer in women. But that still means that last year there were 951 new cases of cervical cancer and about 250 women died of cervical cancer last year. And I think it's also important to recognise that there's a population of women in Australia, which are the Indigenous women, that have twice the rate of um, incidence of cervical cancer as non-Indigenous women and they actually die at three times the rate as non-Indigenous women. And cervical cancer is also a really important cancer worldwide. We know that in developing countries it's the second most common form of cancer. So although the majority of women will develop an HPV infection within onset sort of debut of sexual activity, most cervical cancers peaks at around 45 years of age, which just shows there's a very long sort of lag between infection, persistent infection, precancerous changes, which we're looking for on our cervical screening test, and then the development of cancer. It's a preventable cancer. So we know that there's primary prevention, which is through HPV vaccination, secondary prevention, which is through uh, you know screening programs like the Cervical Screening Test Australia, and then the tertiary prevention, which is sort of picking up cancers once they're developed in an early stage and treatment. The aim is to eliminate cervical cancer in Australia, and I think a lot of people hope that we're on track to do that within the next decade. So this sounds really interesting, and it's also an excellent example of how a comprehensive approach can be taken in medicine to essentially eliminate a prolific disease. I wonder, Dan, if you could comment a little bit about the the vaccination process and the widespread adoption of a a targeted approach to combat HPV. So the HPV vaccine uh, was introduced into Australia in 2007, and the attempt uh, with the human papillomavirus vaccine is to inoculate young adults between the ages of uh, 12 and 14 before sexual activity in order to uh, then counter the possibility of developing HPV. And so that was introduced in 2007 and initially to uh, young girls and it's uh, since been rolled out to boys and girls. And that's uh, it, it now, as of 2018, is two immunisation injections at least six months apart and it's usually about grade seven. So it's a school-based vaccination program. Uptake rate has been high in Australia, which is great. There is variability around the nation with regards uh, uptake. Uh, so in, a, in a urban areas, it's higher than uh, rural and remote regions. And by state, our own state in Tasmania has, a, has the lowest uh, uptake rate, uh, which is, uh, you know, there's room for improvement there, but the rates are still, still uh, high. And also there's a difference between boys and girls. So boys have a, a slightly lower pickup rate than girls. So I think historically, we, because of the well-associated link, known link between HPV and cervical cancer in women, the link is clearly made or, you know, in the community that the vaccination is to prevent cervical cancer in women. It's also now it's been rolled out to boys is to prevent HPV transmission from boys to girls. Because HPV can cause other cancers, uh, not only cervical cancer, but also anal, penile and head and neck cancer, that the importance of the vaccination program potentially is to reduce those cancers as well. And last year, we in November last year, the our College of Pathologists highlighted uh, a particular HPV-associated cancer, which is head and neck cancer, uh, and the, uh, the importance of the recognition of that, the association with HPV in some cases, and potentially the importance of vaccination to reduce that developing in boys and in girls. Up until the last, I suppose, 10, 15 years, the strongest association or causative agents for head and neck cancers, which is, when I say head and neck, I'm talking about the back of tongue and the back of the throat, 
that the causative agents have been smoking and alcohol. Uh, but increasingly, we're seeing there's a different sort of different sort of cancer caused by a different causative agent, and that is uh, HPV. And so that's where the importance of vaccination uh, will be become you know, will become more important to protect uh, uh, people against developing that sort of cancer as well as other cancer. That's really interesting. Thank you, Dan. So you're listening to That's What I Call Science. Today we're talking with two expert pathologists to understand the behind-the-scenes work that helps make everyday medical decisions. Stay tuned for the last section. You're listening to That's What I Call Science, and today we are talking about the invisible doctors, pathologists. My name is Alana Russell and I'm joined by my co-host Neve Chapman along with our expert guests Dr Dan Owens and Dr Eileen Long. So as we've already established, every time you have a blood test or a pap smear or someone tests you for abnormal growths or cancer, that gets sent to a pathologist if it's not a pathologist who's taking the test in the first place. But a lot of us didn't really know about that. I mean, I didn't really know where my blood tests went before today. They just went somewhere and came back with an answer. So, Dan, I was wondering if you had any thoughts on why people know so little about pathologists. That's it. Yeah, I've, I've pondered that, Alana, to try and uh, unpack that as to why we are uh, relatively un, uh, sort of a behind-the-scenes medical specialty. And that's the reason why, I think, is because we generally don't have a uh, face-to-face interaction with people, with patients. In fact, the, the vast majority of, um, of people's experience of pathology is face-to-face, but it's when they go to have their blood taken. So our experienced collectors are the face of pathology when they're taking the blood from someone's um, arm uh, and then putting it in the tubes. And then it goes off quietly to the laboratory where you know there's a whole range of people who are there, it's, it's, uh, scientists, uh, technicians, who are working on the blood samples, uh, analysing the blood samples, and pathologists as well who are involved in the analysis of those samples as well. But that's happening behind the scenes. And then the results are reported back to the doctor who's asked for those tests. And the next that the patient really knows about uh, their pathology results is that they're seeing their doctor who's relaying to them their results. So the laboratory pathology system is working quietly in the background, uh, doing all that work, but it, as I say, it's, uh, it's it's hidden. That's the way it's always been. So I think to the to the general public, it's uh, that's that's why they would be uh, not familiar with what's going on in the laboratory. I think uh, your uh, or the doctors um, who are you know general practitioners, the specialists, are fully aware of, of the importance of pathology in their day to day practice. And when we were talking before about uh, how much. Uh, um, face-to-face uh, activity or you know interact news with pathologists there's a lot between pathologists and other medical specialists so we are um, supporting the diagnosis the management of disease for other general practice specialists and 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 other medical specialists as well so another aspect of what we we do every day is we are involved with what's called uh, multiple disciplinary teams so we pathologists are an important part of that team and the teams are there to uh, assist in the diagnosis and management of people with, with serious illness. And the pathologists are a key part of, of that team along with the treating doctor, uh, treating nursing staff, the treating um, uh, radio, radiologists, etc. So, uh, but once again, that's uh, by and large would be, would be 
uh, unknown to the to the patients that, who are uh, going to be receiving the appropriate treatment. So, Dan, I think you raise a couple of really interesting points there, but I would kind of wonder how important is it for the, the patient to know all of the parts of the, the team that are contributing to their medical care because it is vast. But also, you know, we're in a really interesting moment. It's the international year of the nurse and the midwife. And also there's a global pandemic happening. So I think uh, amongst the public knowledge, there's more appreciation or awareness than ever before of how vast medicine is, how important various different components that we wouldn't normally consider are, such as, you know, like epidemiology is definitely having a moment <laughs> and, and how disease can spread. But I wonder if you could maybe comment on the role that pathologists have played and how the pathology landscape has changed during COVID-19. So there's, over the last uh, couple of months, there's been a dramatic change in the landscape in pathology. And there's two aspects I'd like to draw attention to. The first is that Clearly, the, the onset of COVID, uh, it was very important to, as quickly as, uh, as we could in Australia, to get testing happening so we could identify people who potentially have COVID-19 and those that don't have COVID-19. And then, so then, we can, then, then the public health specialists are able then to manage uh, and, and, and give advice about what to do with regards to the uh, you know, management of the, of the pandemic. Uh, so with what where pathology has been vital has been in the uh, collection of samples from patients. So that has required uh, a lot of what's called nasopharyngeal specimens being collected. So that's uh, swabs into the back of the throat and then down both noses, right down to the back of the um, back of the nose. And that it requires because every time those samples are taken, it needs to be taken with care and with the appropriate. Uh, we're all, all become familiar with the term PPE personal protective uh, equipment and so every sample requires full PPE and protection for the collector and the, for the, the patient and the patient being collected from. So that's at the beginning of the process and then those the swab uh, and it's the swab is sent to the laboratory for testing and uh, we've ex- experienced you know a, a explosion in the you know the amount of testing that's happened around certainly in Australia and that's done in our microbiology labs it's a, it's a molecular test. Uh, looking for the um, looking for the the, uh, the evidence of the virus, uh, you know, as say by specialist uh, testing, and then that we require then that requires the communication of that result to the requesting doctor. Also, every result, whether it be both positive or negative, is communicated to the uh, departments of public health around Australia. That's happened in the background in pathology, but that's uh, taken up a. I have a question. I haven't mm. actually looked into this, and I probably should have before now. How yeah. so? You say it's a molecular test. How do they actually confirm the presence of the virus? Is it looking for the DNA of the virus in that sample of the patient? So it's looking for that. So it's an R, it's an RNA virus. So it's looking for the RNA, the presence of RNA of that particular virus. Um, so that that's uh, what's being used to detect viral RNA. And generally, we infer that if the RNA is there, then the virus is alive. Uh, but we are seeing, we are inferring or thinking that when we're picking up RNA later in people's illness, it might be actually dead virus that's being picked up and they've recovered, from, you know, they've actually recovered from the illness. So that's, that's it's an interesting aspect that still needs to be further explored with regards to testing for and patients. And then there's the whole area of antibody testing. Uh, that's called uh, serology or serological tests for uh, detecting the evidence of previous inf- of recent infection with um with coronavirus, and so there are tests coming online, and it's, it's uh, for 
what we call uh, antibodies called IgM, and there's another antibody called IgG to, to detect whether the um, patients have had people have been exposed to coronavirus. And that's happening in uh, Germany. I know they're using it quite a bit. I think uh, certainly being investigated here in Australia with regards. And, and the concept of uh, immunity passports, uh, you might have, might have heard that as well with regards to people being able to go back to work, et cetera, if they've, um, if they've demonstrated immunity. There's also, um, you know, whether the presence of antibodies actually means that you're not infective is, is another aspect as well. But I'm speaking as a non microbiologist, so that's not my area of specialty, but I, I'm aware of those those discussions going on. I think maybe we'll have to get our teeth into a whole episode on the testing of yeah. COVID-19 in just a moment. It's a pity we don't have more time yeah. to pick both of your brains about it now, but I think Alana has yeah. one final question. Thank you so much for explaining all of that, Dan. I had one final question to end our show on today. It's been really interesting for me to learn about all the work that you're doing kind of in the background, as you said, part of a team. Um, Eileen, I wanted to ask, because you're one of those lab-based um, pathologists, if there's anything that you want the public to take away from today, anything you want the public to know about the pathologists that work behind the scenes with their doctors and GPs, what would you want to say to those people? Although you may not see it. We are involved in every aspect of your care. We work with most medical specialists using so our individual skills um, in different areas to provide information that is really essential for your, uh, for your diagnosis of your disease or information on the staging so uh, they know how far cancers have spread, providing information that allows people to access drugs, um, specialist drugs for cancers, triaging for molecular tests, and also, we're involved in many uh, sort of discussions with our clinical colleagues to, to help provide the best care that, um, that our health system can. Uh, we are medical specialists. Um, we have trained for five years above what we have done through medical school. And uh, yes, we, we just work very closely. So um, I guess every time you get a test result, just maybe pause and think that there is another specialist doctor behind that test result. That's great. Thank you. And thanks to everyone for listening to That's What I Call Science. We love bringing you science-ready content with experts from Tasmania. If you enjoyed the show, please get in touch with us. Or even if you have questions, get in touch with us through That's What I Call Science or That's Science Taz on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. My name is Neve Chapman and I'd like to thank my co-host Alana Russell for all of her work on this episode and our expert guests for being so generous with their time and expertise, Dr. Dan Owens and Dr. Eileen Long. Thank you and goodbye.